Welcome to episode 25 of the Archipreneur Now podcast. I am your host, Heath Armstrong, and once again, I am pumped up to bring you an amazing guest today, David Lint. He's an author and most notably a videographer. He creates videos, including the amazing documentary, Uh, back in 1974, called Life Without, where he actually went inside the San Quentin prison uh, to document these prisoners and how they were living their life. And someone actually got stabbed right in the view of one of his cameras. And it was a huge deal back then. And he's gone on to be one of the most inspiring and passionate people, uh, being relentless, following everything that he loves every single day. Truly one of the most moving and inspiring people I've ever had a chance to talk with. And we're going to get into why following your passion is just the only option in life, as well as his experience creating this video called The Five Keys of Mastery, where he basically interviews some of these greats, including Carlos Santana, B.B. King, Paul Reed Smith, and so many more on their keys to success and what really drove them to get to where they are today. So... All the show notes, artsynow.com forward slash 25, and here we go. Come on, everybody, let me hear that beat. Come on, come on, everybody, let me hear that beat. Here we go now. Who wants to get funky? Who wants to get a little creative out there? What do you want to get a little bit artsy now? Well, then get on with your bad self. A skid a rickety dickety dick, a skid a rickety I've got a serial entrepreneur for you. He's an author, he's a shooter, and he spent over 40 years in the film industry. From Washington, D.C., the Five Keys Master, Dave Lent. Dave, you are the entrepreneur now, man. What is going on? Hey, Heath. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Dave is the author of Video Rules, founder of Dave & Company, and he's been filming for over 40 years, produced and directed The Five Keys to Mastery and the documentary Life Without, which was... I, if I believe your own version of the PBS documentary Inside San Quentin, which you were involved with, well, I I cut uh, I cut the documentary for PBS, so they asked me to re- to remove about. Uh, can I speak freely, Heath? Absolutely, man. Yeah, they asked me to remove about twenty seven fucks, a <laughs> couple of assholes, uh, you know, that kind of language, which they would be fined like ten thousand dollars per use. So I cut a version for them, and then uh, the DVD. I sell a DVD with both versions on it, um, so that everybody. Oh, yeah. I can see with yeah. that with that whole uh, situation that the uncut would be the one you wanted to watch. Well, people are passionate about what they do, and sometimes they uh, use profanity to make their point. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I don't like any kind of censorship, especially self censorship, and so I just wanted to, it to be the way it was. Amen to that, Dave. Nobody's going to hold anybody down, right? 
<laughs> Not me. <laughs> and, and there's an amazing picture of you on that site uh, holding Sony's first portable color camera, like 1974. Yeah. You got an amazing haircut there, man. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it, was, it wanted to be an afro, uh, but you know, <laughs> I couldn't make it happen. <laughs> I'm trying to do that right now. <laughs> I, I'm thinking about getting a perm, but I've had too many people tell me no, and it just makes me want to do it even more. Yeah, you look perfect the way you are. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Uh, before we get into anything in depth, I want to get to know your creative side a little bit, uh, some of your creative influences and some of your favorite uh, works of art so that we can kind of get to know you. So what do you think some of your favorite creative works are? Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is, was maybe the most important and favorite moment in my life, which was when I opened the first page of Marshall McLuhan's Medium is the Massage. Uh, a lot of people still call it the Medium is the Message, but it was a, a Typograph. It was a typo in the publishing um, process, and McLuhan liked massage because it really characterized the way media work us over. Uh, so that was the book. I opened it up, and if you can imagine the polar opposite of a nuclear explosion, that's what happened in my brain. Um, I had been reeling uh, over the for the previous ten years, trying to find myself, not knowing where to look. Uh, uh, failing at almost everything I did, uh, and all the relationships I had, and you know, dro uh, dropping out or flunking out of college, and I opened this book, and for the first time in my life, I knew who I am, um, and I feel that I've been navigating with clear vision uh, uh, from that moment on. And that's such an amazing feeling when you get to that point, isn't it? Yeah, here was a man who, and I cannot compare myself with uh, the achievements or the intellect of Marshall McLuhan, but here was a man who thought like I did. And I thought, oh my God, you know, I'm not alone. Uh, there's somebody else that thinks vertically and in all directions and contradicts themselves because they're thinking vertically, and that's okay. Um, and uh, the content of television... Uh, is irrelevant. It's the environment that television creates, which is what deserves our attention. Um, yeah. And all media for that matter. Yeah. So I uh, immersed myself in the study of media um, uh, for the next eight years. And it got bad, Heath. It got, I was a disciple of McLuhan. And there was a time when I didn't know whether what was coming out of my mouth was him or me. Um, that's how into him I was. And then I learned, like Carlos Santana says in The Five Keys, to shed myself from that influence and learn to think uh, for myself. But McLuhan taught me how to think. Um, uh, uh, number two moment in my history has got to be uh, it was in the early 70s in the Oakland Coliseum. Aretha Franklin was on stage. She opened her mouth, and the sound that came out in the first note made me feel um, uh, uh, closer to God than I'd ever felt in my life. It was uh, like the, the nearest thing I've ever felt to a religious experience was when I heard that first note. And I think the song was Natural Woman. Uh, and number three, I, there's, you know, there's a, I could give you a hundred, uh, influences I consider, um, uh, great, but the book Elements of Style is one of my favorite companions, uh, lifelong companions. Um, and the thing I learned from that is in writing, speaking, uh, 
in every activity, eliminate needless words. Um, so as a, uh, a news shooter, I learn how to eliminate needless information in a frame uh, on my viewfinder uh, with the lens. Um, yeah, it applies to everything in life. Eliminate needless blank. Oh, man, you're, you're, you're huh? 100% on that. And it takes a lot to move from a position where you're not used to that and get to a point where you've actually done it. But, but when you do that, when you start eliminating things that aren't necessary, and we've been experimenting it a lot here. We got rid of our cable. Uh, we got rid of our microwave. And it's getting to a point now where once it's gone, you realize you didn't really need it that much. You definitely didn't depend on it. And you can spend your time doing so many other things that are just so much more beautiful and so much more amazing. Yeah, Susan, my wife, and I have, uh, we got rid of our cable seven years ago, and it's a new world. It's a world of silence and, and reading and talking and, uh, uh, and moving slower. I love it. Yeah. yeah, and it can really take relationships to a whole new level. <laughs> I don't find myself in the doghouse as much, man. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, to watch football, which I love, or baseball or hockey, I go to sports bars. And that's great because you got all the games up there and you're socializing with people and you're drinking a little bit. So it's even more fun and, and less painful when you lose. Mm. Yeah. And it's all about the experience. Yeah. So yeah. do you have any favorite? I know you mentioned. Uh, McLuhan and Aretha Franklin, but do you have any other role models or influencers? Yeah, I've got hundreds of role models. Um, it would be like easy to just say McLuhan, you know, was my the, the most influential person in my life, or, uh, or I learned how to I, I learned my silly uh, uh, my silly sense of humor from Steve Allen, the Steve Allen show, which I used to watch religiously, but. Uh, thinking about this question that you ask, you know, the, the, the loyal friends, lovers, partners, and family that I've had, um, you know, maybe two or three dozen people, uh, they are the ones you know, that had the courage to tell me the truth about who I am, uh, to uh, allow me to love them and to feel loved. Uh, those are the greatest influences are my friends, my partners, my lovers. And the most important people that you'll ever come in contact with in, in your life. For me, yes. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. So yeah. I, I want to talk about some of these items on your, your creative bucket list here in a minute. But first, uh, you know, and we're also going to get into your projects. But first, you, you've been involved with news, documentaries, sports, reality shows, corporate communications, commercials. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and <clears throat> what transitioned you into living this life full of passion and, uh, and doing what you love on a daily basis? Well, I, I was born in, and grew up till I was 12 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, most people probably don't know where that is, but we call it the Maui of the Midwest. Uh, we love it there. It's a great, great place to raise your kids up. My dad was with a company that was growing real fast uh, in the post-war years. So he would, we would move a lot, like every couple of years. We wound up in Toronto. And, and when my dad was with us, an electronics company, they made really sophisticated uh, transmitters, receivers for aircraft. Um, uh, and he uh, would take me to trade shows and let me hang around the factory. And I got introduced to very high technology at a really early age. And I didn't learn much about it, but I 
became real comfortable with it. So that when I, um, uh, well, I, I went, let me back up a little bit. Uh, I, I wound up in Europe, and that's where a friend handed me this book, The Medium as the Massage. But before this, moving around a lot, I was always the new kid. My passion was football. In high school, I lost a kidney playing football. And I lost my passion when I couldn't play football anymore. My parents were so determined that I'd be happy that they found a military school that would allow me to play football with one kidney in Texas. So I played football there, got hurt again, uh, and realized this is the end of football. And that's when I spun out of control as a teenager uh, because I was lost. I didn't know who I was. I lost what I thought was my calling, which was to play football. Um, and, you know, that'll just get you so far playing football. Uh, I wouldn't have made it in college. Uh, um, but um, uh, I, I uh, got in trouble a lot, um, hung out with the wrong kind of people, not the wrong kind of people, but people that were, were uh, doing bad things. Uh, and uh, my parents, um, you know, they took me uh, to get help from a priest and a psychiatrist and uh, tried to help me, you know, um, find my place in the world because I was at war with myself and the world. I was in my late teens, early 20s. They finally decided to buy me a ticket to Europe, give me some walking around money. And I got to Europe and immediately settled in Copenhagen where I met my friend and who gave me that McLuhan book. Uh, and uh, what was the question? Just talking about your background and, and how well, you kind back, of got. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so um, I went. I came back from Europe to Dallas, and I had been uh, intrigued by this uh, these Danish open face sandwiches, which were on almost every street. Uh, little shops that sold these things. They were beautiful. They were designed to be nutritious and and good looking and inexpensive. And they were everywhere in Denmark. And I thought, why don't they have these in the United States? And so I came home. Borrowed some money from, uh, 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 well, and a friend of mine invested. We started a little business called the Little Danish. Lasted maybe a, a less than a year, and it went under. And when my business failed, I, I again felt desperate. Not that I wasn't a happy uh, person that, you know, I knew who I was. I was, I was strong, but I was uh, really depressed. Um, and I had had a close friend move to Sausalito, California, and I had been introduced to the concept of, of video production, which was just starting in California and in Manhattan in New York. And I called my friend and he said, come on out, Dave, you can stay in my house until you find a, a job. I moved out there. Within a week, I met a guy with one of the first Sony Portapacks, portable video cameras. These were the first. And I... Uh, I fell in love. He said, do you want to borrow this for, for a week and just play with it? He gave it to me, and Heath, that was it. Uh, I fell in love uh, that day with that camera, and I knew that I would be in love for the rest of my life with the camera. Yeah, mm. absolutely, man. I, I've, I can't imagine. You probably just like – it's like pulling your pants down and just running out into the world and saying, hey, you know, I'm out of my comfort zone. And yeah, this is and awesome. Money, <laughs> money was – not even uh, in my head. I, I had my money hustle. I, I waited tables at, at various restaurants. 
And that was just to make money to pay the rent. My love was shooting video, and I just shot and shot and shot. When I didn't have any more money to buy tape, I would use computer tape. Um, I would erase things that I'd already shot to shoot new things. I was just like a shooting. Uh, we called ourselves video freaks in those days, <laughs> which we were. Um, and, but, you know, uh, money was never uh, in, in, in our heads. And it was only when I was uh, in San Quentin producing my first documentary uh, and something happened. Some, uh, two people got stabbed. There was a, a gang fight between the Mexican mafia and the black gorilla family. And two people were stabbed and one of them died on camera right in front of me. And uh, I took that tape to the local CBS station who's, who sent it uh, to L.A. to be edited and to New York for the Walter Cronkite Evening News. And they, they gave us, I think, $1,200 for 20 seconds. And that was just like a mind-boggling experience for us to think that we could make money doing this, you know, shooting with cameras. Oh, yeah. I mean, in that whole situation of getting that on film had to have been just unbelievable. And you have a quote, you know, this... This is I, I made it not only for the prisoners who shared unflinchingly the most intimate details of their broken lives, but also to honor the prisoner who died from a stab wound in front of my lens. Because the men of San Quentin didn't censor themselves for my camera, I felt compelled to make a film that would not look away from their ugly, disturbing, poetic truths. I mean, that, that's powerful, man. It really is. I can't imagine. Like, how did, how did that situation and that incident affect your life and, and going forward with, with creating this life and staying in film? Well, the first thing that uh, happens when I don't know, somebody like you or me goes into a prison for any length of time uh, as a visitor is um, it, well, first you, you start having bad dreams and mine lasted for months and months where you would dream that you're in there and that you can't get out. And I think in your subconscious, you, it, uh, you start to internalize the, the horrible, the horror of living in a prison. Um, and the second, the next thing that happens is it radicalizes uh, a person about uh, the, the criminal justice system in this country. Uh, you learn quickly uh, there's a train going by. I live very close to train tracks. You learn very, very fast that uh, maybe 10%, maybe less of the people that are incarcerated really don't need to be there. You know, some might have gone in for a minor, like, weed uh, offense and gotten into, a, uh, gotten into a scuffle with somebody or associated with a gang member, and then they go before the... the, uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, a board, um, and they get their uh, they get uh, put in protective custody, or they get their sentence increased, uh, and then you, you meet people that are doing like fifteen to life when they went in there in a minor drug bust. Man, that is it's the most disturbing thing I've ever heard. Yeah, to, it, it's it, everything. Every behavior in, in prison is about survival. Almost everyone, and so you you have to be protected. Um, from people that would take advantage of any weakness that you might have. Um, um, yeah. So how so, long were you in there filming? Well, uh, when, that, uh, uh, when that stabbing happened, um, we were kicked out of the prison. The prison was locked down, and we were kicked out because uh, people in the corrections department in Sacramento, you know, the high officials there, 
saw the, the our footage on the evening news, and they called the warden, uh, Warden Britt, and they said, what in the fuck are those cameras doing in our prison? Uh, one of my co-producers was a friend of the former warden who uh, arranged uh, for us to come in, and we were the first cameras to be allowed in San Quentin. So he kicked us out, uh, and... Uh, months passed. We, we had been shooting for a week at that time. Months passed, and one of my other co-producers was dating a guy named Tony Klein, who was uh, Jerry Brown's, who was governor at the time, uh, legal affairs secretary. And Martha went to Tony and uh, told him that we would like to get back in to finish the doc. And so Tony uh, talked to Jerry Brown and uh, they agreed that the, the San Quentin should let us back in. So we got back in to finish. So uh, go figure. That's the way it happens. Yeah. yeah. And it aired on PBS, and I'm sure that that had a pretty big effect. And It did. It had a, had a, a large audience for PBS. And, um, uh, yeah, uh, you know, my doc, it was my first. And you can tell when you see it that it's raw. My skills and, and those of my uh, shooting and sound colleagues were raw and uh, and we were beginners, but in San Quentin, because there had never been cameras there, all you had to do was hold the camera steady, and what people would say to you was poetry. Oh, I bet. So, um, yeah, yeah. So did they they leave the the stabbing incident into the film? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. So where can our listeners find that? Is it available? Well, yeah, email me because uh, I'm getting ready to, to remix uh, uh, Life Without, um, combining two versions. Uh, and um, uh, so if you email me, I will set you up with a link to the 58-minute version. Okay, and I can put your email address in the show notes for everybody, which will be at artsynow.com forward slash David Lent. Yeah, I can't release it right now publicly. Um, um, but I will release it privately to anybody. Awesome, man. So you, you've really taken your past and all of these amazing things that you've learned following your passion, getting into the film, becoming a shooter, and you've, you've kind of balled them all up and taken this approach to where you want to teach people you know, how you do it, all about your methods. Uh, and you've created this book called Video Rules, which basically distills 40 years of know-how shooting news, documentaries, sports, business, and entertainment into six basic into a set of six basic principles. And you get into the law of camera work, not only how to shoot in any situation, but more importantly, how to think about how to shoot. Yeah, yeah. It, it, for me, it's it's it doesn't it, you know if you're shooting, I don't care whether you're shooting with uh, IMAX or iPhone. If you're steady well composed, the lighting is good, um, and the audio is clear. Um, you, your video is going to be compelling. And if you're doing this with an iPhone and somebody else is doing mediocre work with, with, with uh, you know, IMAX, they will look at, at what you've done. So it doesn't matter. The technology doesn't matter. Uh, you can shoot the most powerful film ever made on an iPhone. Yeah, because it's about the craft. It's yeah, all that's the beauty of creativity. And it's, it's true in any profession, isn't it? Yeah, we uh, episode two was Sarab Mirmont, and he's a director out there in Hollywood. And he, at 19 years old, he won 
the audience choice at the New York International Film Festival, and he really touched on that subject as well with the ability to create anything is right in front of you. It doesn't matter what you use. You just have to get out there and do it. And you can apply that to anything in life. If somebody is really passionate about something, all you have to do is just go out there and do it. Yeah, and you have to do a few other things too. You have to get uh, good instruction, uh, either a mentor or a coach or advisors. Um, you have to practice every day or at least, you know, three, four times a, a week. Uh, you have to visualize the outcomes of what you want. Um, you have to take chances, play the edge. Yeah, these are the five keys, of course, which we'll get into too. There is a chapter in Video Rules called The Five Keys to Mastery where I talk about how to apply these principles to uh, your craft, whatever your craft might be. But in this case, it's um, uh, shooting. Yeah. And, and when I uh, subtitle How to Think About it, How to Shoot, this is very important because when I hold a camera, I, I, I know that I'm holding um, the viewer's brain in my hands. So I have to be respectful um, and, and gentle. You know, there is a time to be rough, you know, and playful, but uh, this is a person's brain that I'm holding. Um, you have to know what the camera is, and the camera is not a looking device, it's a listening device. It's more like an ear than it is an eye. Uh, so when people, like, use a lot of zooming, a lot of camera movement, uh, they don't appreciate um, the fact that this device is an extension uh, of your brain. And it's it wants to listen, and not to look. Oh, absolutely, man. Yeah. And so, so you you talk about these minor habits or or the kind of core methods that you would tell somebody to use uh, to kind of get to where they want to be. Do you have any habits of your own or methods that you've developed to stay focused on your everyday goal leading up to what you want to do in the future, like your ultimate long term goal? Yeah, and they are, uh, uh, my method is the five keys to mastery, which was uh, taught to me by George Leonard. Uh, George was an Aikido teacher uh, for 35 years, lived in Mill Valley, California, and author of many books, 12 or 13 books. He was also a, a, a writing partner of Marshall McLuhan at Look Magazine back in the, in the 60s. Uh, which is a connection that I really appreciate because two of my most important influences were partners. Um, uh, George uh, noticed in his Aikido classes that, that, that the students that excelled, that rose to the top, seemed to share common traits. So he uh, started studying these traits and identified five traits and gave them names and called them the five keys to mastery. Uh, uh, George studied athletes, right? And he, he published his findings uh, in Esquire magazine showing how top professional athletes uh, in the late 80s were using these five keys to mastery to, uh, uh, in their, with their craft to achieve uh, great accomplishments. George allowed me to uh, add one key, to change one key. Because I, I reminded him that all the people that he studied were athletes, and you have to decide what, what it is you love to do first. You have to know what your calling is first. That's got to be key number one, and he agreed, because it hadn't occurred to him because he was only dealing with athletes. So number one is uh, surrender to your passion. 
your passion is your calling, and there's a lot of terms for this. I prefer calling. Answer your calling. Um, your passion is that voice that has been calling to you your entire life. It is like a, the seed of an acorn that you are born with, and it is destined to grow in certain ways. If you, you know, can understand it and nurture it um, and help it grow the way that it wants to grow, like a garden, right? So uh, answer your calling. That's number one. Number two is uh, practice, practice, practice. Uh, do something every day to, uh, to practice this thing that is your craft, your calling. Number three is get a guide. That is an instructor, a coach, a mentor. A, uh, a, it could be a priest or a rabbi or a friend or a partner. Get people to help you uh, learn faster and better um, so that you don't do like I did, which is like tripping over my own tools for years. Uh, I never understood the, I didn't understand the value of a, a good teacher for many, many years uh, as a shooter. I probably could have done in 10 years what it took me 20 years to do in terms of volume of, of, of achievements. Uh, number four is visualize the outcome. Uh, and all athletes, all professional athletes have visualization coaches um, in many fields they do. Um, my favorite way of visualizing is to get it out of my head and into a form where I can see it every day. Like um, after I'd shot uh, my first few interviews uh, for the Five Keys to Mastery, um, I had B.B. King and Paul Reed Smith, the guitar maker, and I decided that I wanted to get Carlos Santana uh, into the program. So I called his office in Mill Valley, uh, California, or San Rafael, California, and talked to his brother, Jorge, who was his manager at the time. And sent, had, I had sent Jorge some materials about my project, and Jorge said, Carlos loves the idea, but he's not going to get involved unless you have a major distributor. So I said, well, thanks. Uh, I'll see what I can do. And so I started researching distributors, and I went to my uh, local border store, and I looked for DVDs that had, were in, in the, a similar genre as mine, you know, self-help things, Tony Robbins, Deepak Chopra. And I noticed that many of them were distributed by Wellspring Home Video. So I started sending uh, email messages and making phone calls to Wellspring, and I got no answers from them. Nobody called me back or wrote me back. So I went to, um, well, so I, I, I printed out Wellspring's logo. I decided to apply key number uh, four here. I printed out Wellspring's logo and, and set it on the edge of my computer and wrote my distributor on the bottom. Then I went to my local video store in Washington and I asked the manager, who is the person from Wellspring that comes here and sells you these DVDs? And he said, Marty Johnson. And uh, he's the East Coast uh, sales rep. And I said, can you give me Marty's number? And he said, yeah, I'd be glad to. Gave me Marty's, num Marty's number, called Marty. Marty loved the concept. He said, I'm going to set you up with a phone meeting with Al Catabiani, the president of Wellspring. Al and I were on the phone soon. Within like a couple of months, Al had put in $50,000. Um, Wellspring was my distributor, and the Carlos Santana interview was in the can. And Heath, I swear to you, it's because I cut out that little logo and wrote my distributor. What happened, what I think happens is that your subconscious mind 
is aware of this all the time, your visualization. It believes everything it sees and hears. And if you're telling it that Wellspring is my distributor, um, it's going to start making you do the work you need to do. It's going to work on your conscious mind to make you do the things you need to do to merge the distance between, the gap between the visualization and the material world. So before long, you know, if, uh, you'll start doing the, the work that you need to do and you will make it happen. Uh, and the visualization is a key instrument on, on getting what you want. Oh, yeah. If I look up about three feet above my monitor here, David, I've got a big old visualization board. Mm. It is the most powerful tool and it is the most important and the first thing I look at every single day. Wonderful. You're, you're, I told you, you're in the zone. Yeah. And it's amazing when you make a step towards those and, and you can look back, you know, you can set different time strengths, lengths for when you want to meet these uh, goals. But as you take stuff down from the previous year and, and you see all the things that you've accomplished, it just lights that fire. And I've even talked to people that make, uh, previous guest Kelly Lundberg, she makes little uh, pocket size She'll put all of her visualization stuff on a little business card size, and she carries it, and she puts them all over her house everywhere. Oh, that's wonderful. She carries wonderful. it in her wallet in that little uh, where you would usually put your license, and she said that's even more effective. So That's wonderful. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, the, the, all the people on the Five Keys DVD, they'll, they made a, uh, a point that, that it's key that you put the, the – you make the message that you write in your visualization – in the present, uh, let's say you want to lose some weight. Well, you put up a visualization of the body that you want to have, and you write on it, my body. So you're putting it in the present. Not the body I want, because as somebody in the DVD said, that has already come true. You're wanting this, right? Mm -hmm. This is my body, or this is the view from my cottage in the Caribbean, right? Uh, it's got to be in the present, and because your subconscious has got to... Um, believe this is true, to do the work. Yeah. And key number five is play the edge. Again, there's many ways of saying play the edge. Push the envelope, raise the bar, give it 110%. Um, you're on your boundaries with, with play the edge, and you're pushing your boundaries constantly. Uh, one, of the, one of my profile subjects said, if you're comfortable, you're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And comfort is the enemy of the artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, break the rules, but first break the rulers, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Break break rules to make new rules. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, what you know, you've you talked to Carlos Santana and BB King and, and Paul Reed Smith, which man, I'm in love with his guitars. Uh, what are some of the interesting things that you learned from some of those guys? Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, that none of them. And these were Nobel Prize winners, Olympic gold medalists, you know, Grammy winner performers, um, uh, people like uh, Linus Torvalds, who uh, created the, the uh, Linux. Uh, none of these people considered themselves masters. Um, they all considered themselves students along their path. Um, uh, I'm, I think Carlos said, I think it was Carlos that said, uh, you know, referring to everybody out there, hey, if, if I can do this, anybody can. You know, that he came from such humble beginnings, like, so, like all of us, uh, that he just discovered his passion and uh, went, went ahead with no safety net, just decided to be loyal to his passion. 
and it, and 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 they're all this way. If you when you're loyal to your passion um, and you resist the uh, the advice to go for the for the money or go for the glory or go for the fame, when you just follow and stay loyal to your passion, uh, you will live the life of your dreams. And if you don't follow your passion, there's no way you can. Oh man, we are all of in ourselves our own lottery tickets. You know, if we put a little <laughs> bit, you know, if, if you put a little bit of investment into yourself every single day, take a little risk on that ticket. You know, you you can change your life forever, and it's amazing how fast it can happen if you are really persistent about it. Exactly, Heath, and 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 you've got to embrace failure. Get rid of the. Uh, Shed the negative charge that failure has. Failure is the most wonderful thing in the world. I consider myself one of the greatest, greatest failures of all time, or at least in my generation, because uh, you try something, it fails. You try something else, it fails. You try something else, you fail. You try something else, it works. Mm-hmm. You've got to go through that, uh, that path of failing in order to learn how to succeed. Yeah, and it's beautiful because... If you really look at what is actually there, failure is an amazing experience. But if you put the two, you know, there is success and then there's quitting. You can quit, but that doesn't mean that you, when you, when you were trying to get to the point where you wanted to be, that you didn't make some kind of progress. And if you make some kind of progress, it's better than sitting there and doing nothing and never trying in the first place. So you're, you're getting success no matter what. You might not hit the goal that you wanted to originally, but you made progress towards that goal. And we fail and fail again and fail again. And every single one of those failures leads up to something more beautiful the next time around. The people that are the most successful are the people that have failed the most. There are no exceptions. Absolutely, David. Stephen Tobolowski uh, said, we are practicing all the time. And we don't know that we're practicing, but we are all practicing all the time. Uh, uh, practice, I mean, success and failure are both synonyms for practice. That's all they are. Repetition. Yeah. Work out. Um, just do it. Show up. It's all practice. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think your ultimate long-term life goal is obviously you have a much bigger meaning than just going out and shooting film you're doing something much more powerful and a much shorter lifelong goal than you too i'm 71 years old i think i'm still 71 yeah yeah. and you're still doing amazing things um well thank you uh my uh i uh, my intention is to uh um, grow uh half a dozen income streams. Um, my, my first book video rules is one of them. Um, uh, a series of MP3s and, uh, a book and video of the raw interviews from all of my five keys to master subjects is not, is another one. Um, I intend to travel and teach the five keys to mastery, uh, in, in a, workshop or play shop it's a play shop form it's called the five keys to mastery play shop i can teach it in i can teach a martial art without the martial part in two hours four hours or a weekend i prefer two hours quicker the better i could probably teach it in 30 minutes uh but what the five keys is it's a martial art it's aikido it's 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 an outgrowth of aikido 
but it it's not the throwing people around or falling on the mat part of it. It's the blending with your environment and blending in relationships, uh, blending with conflict, blending with toxic environments, blending and harmonizing, um, uh, 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 defending yourself from uh, the effects of corporate media, um, defending yourselves from from clients or bosses or colleagues from hell. Um, that's what the five keys do for me, and I want to teach it to, to other people. Well, I'm looking forward to being a student of it, and I will post the trailer to that uh, documentary in the show notes. And where can our listeners get a hold of, of that DVD? Are you selling that on your website? Yeah, well, that one is a, it's got its own website called uh, The Five, and the, the number five, not the word five. Um, the five keys to mastery.com is where to get that. Yeah. And I'll post that there as well. Very, very cool. Yeah. You know, one of your questions was, you know, if I could spend an hour creating something with anyone from the past to the present. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 because we're on the subject, uh, my choice would be, I would like to spend an hour with the President of the United States, uh, whoever it is, Republican, Democrat, male, female, whatever. And together, he or she and I would, uh, would hammer out a plan to install the five keys to mastery in the educational system throughout the United States, starting with grade one through high school. Um, to, to start to refocus the purpose of of education to not pushing information in, but pulling people out, uh, helping people uh, become themselves uh, by discovering the calling and then nurturing each child uh, to find their uh, find and develop their gift, their their unique, extraordinary gift, which makes everyone living uh, capable of accomplishing great things. Yeah, that's so beautiful because if you look at the school systems today, really when you come up through the education system, you don't learn those core life values like these five keys that would really make a huge difference in revolutionizing these kids' lives and following their passions. You know, they don't teach you stuff like that. And I, I think that would be like a world changing movement if if you know the opportunity to put those in place was there. It would. Can you imagine the 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 potential of the release of energy from this country, positive energy uh, from this country. Um, uh, you know, right now, we, our country, because the way we are, we respond to conflict with, uh, with a closed fist. And we need to be the kind of people that do not take sides, one side or the other in a conflict, for instance, take all sides and reach into places that may not contain strategic interests for our energy future or, uh, you know, a, a border um, security, whatever. We need to be available as a loyal friend to everyone in the world. Uh, and I think that when people, uh, and we would also, you know, bring the five keys with us because it's, uh, I tell you, it is um, a powerful uh, set of tools um, for, for achievement. Yeah. Yeah, being able to offset, you know, for every negative, there's a positive out there and everything has an inverse. And I, I do think that 
we have gotten to an age where everybody is so reliant on technology and is so disconnected from relationships that we're not seeing the, this overall energy of people and how we are all truly connected in the same way with nature. And we need to be able to take you know, that positive energy and just you know, shift it out and, and bring, bring that happiness back into the world so we can all follow our passions, so we can all help each other and love each other and create this world that it was meant to be in the first place. Yeah, this is a tough time we're living in now because we've got so many new uh, and constantly changing technologies that that are are global, and we we are um, we are ultra sensitive because it's like having a new skin around us as as a people as uh, as humanity, and we have not learned how to live in this new, clever, sophisticated. Uh, but often toxic environment of all this new technology. So we're ultra sensitive to what people say to us or do to us or write to us because um, we're touchy. We're touchy until we learn how to um, take control of the new environments that our technology has created. Um, uh, both McLuhan and George Leonard, who were writing partners, who were both mortified by the American educational system. McLuhan used to say that if, 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 one, if only one subject were taught in schools, which is media, uh, allowing kids to teach themselves everything else that they were interested in, the kids would be getting their PhDs by the time they're 15 years old. And, yeah, and, and, he, and he said this like 30 years ago. I think that the kids would be getting their PhDs by the time they're 10 years old now, yeah. the way things have changed. You know, oh. yeah. <laughs> it's funny to think about it in that way. It's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I often go on YouTube to get a tutorial like uh, taking out the battery from my uh, my my um, my um, laptop, and I'm learning from uh, a 12 year old <laughs> who knows more about the subject than anybody, and he's a good teacher. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Dave, if you had to battle Godzilla. How would you use your creativity or talents to defeat that big, ugly bastard? Well, that's kind of an American uh, uh, foreign policy way of looking at it, isn't it, Heath? I mean, Godzilla, <laughs> he, he was alternately, like over his history in the films, he was alternately a heroic character and also uh, a force for destruction. Um, I, I believe that you know being he, he's and he's a cross between a gorilla and a whale, right? And he is Japanese, and I know the Jap having worked with Japanese clients for many years, I know the Japanese ways. I would like to become Godzilla's, and as the Japanese call him Godzilla, I would like to become his coach. I believe that he could could transform himself once he gets comfortable with his identity, which has been the, the source of his anger uh, uh, and hostility and destructiveness, his un inability to find his true identity. I would like to help him discover what his calling is, and it might be uh, protecting or, or exploring uh, uh, the, the deep sea. He can breathe underwater, being half whale, you know. Uh, I think he could help build bridges. There's a lot of things he could do for humanity. And I would like to be his coach, help him make the transformation uh, and put him to work with us uh, and not, not fight him or defeat him. And, that, and that's an amazing message that can go to tame all of our inner Godzilla's for the better. 
My, my, one of my closest friends uh, was a family therapist, psychologist, and I, he used to let me come to his workshops in Northern California in return for me videotaping his workshops. And I remember him saying to the, to the group, you know, we've all got gremlins, uh, and, and as long as we let them out regularly for exercise, they, they won't become demons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the gremlins might try to sneak up every once in a while, but uh, let them out. Let them, have, yeah, their, let them have their moment. I mean, if something happens and you get angry, you know, have that anger. It's meant to be there for, for that two or three minutes, but then just let it go. You can't change it and move on to something more positive. Uh, and I think that that's a principle you can apply to everything. And, and everybody struggles with it, but uh, you just have to learn that you know those demons and those gremlins, they are going to come out. Let it happen and then move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have any favorite uh, closing advice or resources or maybe some kind of tools that you use that you think you could share with our listeners that they could find value in? And I mean, even after the resources and the, and the advice, you know, if we had some, some listeners out there that wanted to get into filming uh, and they were passionate and they think that's something that they want to do, what kind of advice would you give them today to be able to do that? Um, find somebody who's doing what you want to do uh, and, and, and figure out a way or create a way to attach yourself to that person. You know, somebody who's really good at what you want to do well, uh, and this can be in, you know, not just shooting, but anything, attach yourself to that person. And you might, you know, volunteer to do something for them, or you might uh, uh, ask if you could be their assistant to get them coffee, give them a second opinion, park the car, any number of services that you could offer to somebody who you uh, want to emulate or learn from. Uh, um, become an apprentice. Um, uh, yeah. And just, you know, uh, 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 keep after it. Like, uh, don't take no for an answer. You know? uh, just, just be persistent and decide this is the person you want to be associated with. And, you know, if they uh, rebuff you, uh, say, you know, is it okay if I like check in with you every now and then just to rattle your cage, see how you're doing, uh, tell you what I'm doing. Yeah. Find, get a guide, okay? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, you will learn. Your growth curve will be much shorter if you have somebody. And, you know, Video Rules, my book, uh, that's what it is. It, it's a guide. I want people to not have to be as stupid as I was many times um, to, and also to know things that I couldn't have known without doing this for 40 years. Um, uh, yeah, uh, become as informed as you can on your subject and practice, uh, you know, apply the five keys to it, Heath. You know? yeah, tell, uh, tell everybody what you do and somebody will want to help you do it. And it, it's amazing. And I wouldn't be anywhere where I am without some amazing mentors that I've had along the way. And it is truly powerful. I mean, with climbing up that learning curve, how much time and, and you could save yourself just from the advice of another. Yeah. Yeah, we are, and we are our own best PR agents. So let everybody know what you're looking for. Um, this is like visualizing too, but using other people as your visualization. Tell them what we're what we're after, what we want, who we want, who we want to meet. Have everybody out looking for you. You know, um, but you know, one thing I I I would like to leave uh, you and listeners with is 
something I printed on the back of my business card. So when I give a business card to somebody now, I mainly give it to them so that they can have this quote, which is on the back of it. And it's a, a quote by Joseph Campbell. And I was listening, watching the PBS interview live on PBS back in the early 70s when he said this. And uh, I got chill bumps now just remembering it. <laughs> Hair stood up on my neck. Uh, took my breath away. I started to cry. And here's what he said to Bill Moyers. When you follow your bliss, that thing that truly electrifies you, four things automatically happen. Number one, you put yourself in the path of good luck. Number two, you meet the people you want to know. Number three, doors open where there weren't doors before. And number four, doors open for you that wouldn't open for anybody else. Wow. That is chilly, man. And you know, this is, uh, you know, I've had 43 years of experience doing what I love. And I can guarantee you that this works <laughs> all the time uh, without fail. And you, of course, you never know where it's going to come from. I followed my passion into San Quentin produced this documentary. One of my uh, friends, a friend of a friend of mine saw it, called her friend who wanted to get into filmmaking in San Francisco, gave this woman her number. I mean, uh, my number. She called me. I liked the sound of her voice. I invited her for dinner. She became my wife. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that <laughs> an was an amazing the, story. <laughs> yeah. Because, as soon as she walked in the door, I, I saw in her eyes that she was the one. And this is what happens when you follow your passion. And because I met her, we had our incredible, fabulous daughter. And God, I can't imagine life without these people. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful story, man. You've been amazing guest today, and I really appreciate all the insight and value. And uh, were you going to say something else there? Oh, just uh, that... Um, you, one of your questions that you sent me uh, was about what I would change if I had it to do all over again. And I don't think, I think there's only one little thing that I would change, and that was to keep my, my baseball cards. But I wouldn't change anything because every choice that I made throughout my life uh, affected me maybe just in a tiny increment into following the path that I've taken and because it was the path that I've taken, becoming who I am, and I might not have met Susan at that juncture. I might not have been at that juncture at that moment. Um, so I wouldn't change anything except the thing about the baseball cards. <laughs> <laughs> I had some good ones. <laughs> Touche. You always got something you let go you wish you had back, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> How can our listeners find you or get in contact with you? Uh, well, I'm Dave Lent, and uh, my email address is Dave and Co. as if you're writing Dave and Company, D-A-V-E-A-N-D-C-O at gmail.com. Uh, my website is daveandcompany.us. I mean, uh, .us. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so email me. I'm happy to uh, to um, have a conversation with any of you. I love uh, sharing what I know and hearing about other people that are, you know, uh, looking for uh, their calling. 
um, or encountering some obstacle. Um, great thing about the five keys is that uh, it allows you, you know, like, like a martial art, uh, it allows you to um, uh, get around or over or under or through any obstacle. It's really, uh, it's just Absolutely, such a, it's just, just so, so wonderful to be able to live in this way, you know. Like I, you know, I have every, I have the same kind of problems everybody does, issues, rough edges. Um, but I know that I can accomplish anything I want. And that is a really good feeling. If I want to write another book, that, uh, you know, by December, I'll, I'll do it. I know I can do it. If I want to make a documentary, if I want to interview, uh, name somebody, Beyonce, I can do it. Um, because you, this gives you, the five keys gives you uh, the way to do it. You know? Like, if I, if I want Beyonce, an interview with Beyonce, I, I'll, I'll go to her like protective circle. I'll get rebuffed, but I'll get another name. I'll go to this person. I'll go to somebody that may know a friend of her. I'll, I'll find her. I'll get to her. That's the way you think when you uh, live practicing the five keys. It's not, it's not if... It's how and when Yeah, for, for everything. Everybody needs to use your talents that you possess uh, and do the things that you love. And you know, Henry Van Dyke said, the woods would be very silent if no birds sang there except those that sang the best. Uh, you, you don't have to be better than everybody else to do what you actually love. You are your own person for a reason, and you can create that life around yourself. And if you want your life to be different, you have to be willing to do something different first. So go outside, do a little dance, do a little boogie, uh, do a little jive, smile a little bit, say hello to your neighbors, ask people where you can help them, and just give, give, and give, and you'd be amazing the miracles that can happen around you in your life. So Dave... Once again, man, thank you so much for being the Archipreneur now, and always remember to keep it funky. Uh, <clears throat> Heath, I'm honored and, and thrilled and touched by your interest and, and generosity with me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Archipreneur Now podcast. For all the show notes and more information, please visit artsynow.com. That's A-R-T-S-Y now.com. Thank you. The music for this podcast was provided by Shaky Feeling out of Ventura, California. For more information, please visit shakyfeeling.com. Keep it funky.